Senses, the podcast where we try to make sense of sensation. My name is Nick, and I am your host. Uh, thanks for tuning back in. Sorry for the hiatus last time around. Um, took a little break, but we're back. And this week we have a pretty cool concept to talk about, um, and that's ocular centrism. So we've been kind of talking about different uh, themes, different ideas that have emerged around the senses, and soon here what I want to do is dive into different senses pretty in-depth, talk about sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, and other senses such as kinesthesia, the sixth sense, interoception, more in-depth individually, um, maybe bringing on some guests to talk about it, and also just diving into what's been written so far. But right now, what we're kind of working through are different ideas, different topics around the senses that show that there's a lot to it, especially in the realm of sociology, in the realm of social sciences. Um, and and today's topic's no different. So ocular centrism is an interesting concept because it comes out of looking specifically at vision, but it really entails a whole moment in history, a moment that we're really still living in in which vision has been the dominant sense, um, or at least considered dominant in social history and in cultural history. Um, so yeah, ocular centrism is the privileging of the sight, uh, the sense of sight, which is characteristic, at least pretty thoroughly, of Western modernity, of Western history. Uh, this is... Uh, been going on since about the Renaissance, and and in many ways it still is, and this is what we're going to talk a little bit about today. Um, but this is a paradigm, right? Uh, the the division between the senses is a uh, social construction, and so the construction of sight as the most important or the most dominant sense is a paradigm. It's a it's a concurrent social construction. Now, privileging sight also comes with uh, the reduction or the outcasting of other senses, particularly what are known as proximate senses, so um, taste, smell, touch, and using sight as uh, a source of reason, linking it to different elements of truth, of quantitative inquiry, of scientific inquiry, and casting other senses as more animalistic, more associated with savagery, barbarianism, and often otherized just as other cultures are otherized. Um, And so instead of seeing um, smell and taste as either very complementary with sight or seeing them as uh, equal in terms of sensory usage and, and importance, vision is privileged here. And this has been both happening in subtle ways and quite obvious ones for many years. And I'm going to talk about a couple different authors and what they've said about this paradigm. So in a review article, for instance, um, Professor Kelvin Lowe talks about what he calls the hierarchy of the senses. Um, And obviously here we're talking about ocular centrism, so vision being at the top of this hierarchy. But again, this division between Um, sight on one end and the proximate senses on the other, and then sound often finds its way somewhere in the middle. Now, this hierarchy of the senses 
uh, uh, Lowe talks about originating with um, early Western philosophers, including Plato and Aristotle, and particularly Aristotle um, seeing vision as linked to divinity, um, linked to higher reason, and and these philosophers also were very key in dividing sensory perception into the five senses that we know today, uh, sight, sound, smell, taste, and feeling, and seeing these as very clear, distinct senses. And before, and I'm sure going forward, we're going to talk a lot about how these divisions are very, again, socially constructed, very arbitrary in a lot of ways. And even though they do map onto certain forms of perception, there are ways of thinking about how we can get beyond this five senses paradigm. So uh, this hierarchy of the senses has vision at the top, and um, early philosophers thought about the linkages between vision and um, different forms of status. So again, divinity, uh, privileging um, sight when it comes to the scientific revolution, thinking about uh, original perspectives and, and truth as being linked to what we can see, right, as the title of this episode alludes to. Now, the hegemony of vision is dependent on this division, which many have denounced as artificial, um, linked to very different cultural norms. And this is why we're looking at how it originates in the West and how the Western conceptualizations of vision spread globally. Um, so this is not to say that all cultures have privileged vision. Um, in fact, some don't even have um, a distinct uh, uh, um characterizations around vision uh, and instead see other senses as, as predominantly important, such as taste and smell. So we're going to think a little bit about this. And in looking at ocular centrism, um, there are a lot of ways of considering it linked to the rise of Western modernity. The first is the connection between what we can see and print media or print capitalism um, this is going to theorists in communication studies, uh, Marshall McLuhan, um, Benedict Anderson, uh, both came up with these very integral studies about communication, about connection, and how they discuss how the proliferation of text as a visual medium um, creates a sense of trust in what we can uh, read in the written word. And this is linked to the power of different states, nation states, different uh, div divine um, rulers to control and create, you know, national, local, religious, ethnic communities. And so vision, being able to read, being able to create a, a kind of collaborative community around national ideas, for instance, around symbols, is largely dependent on whether or not a population um, is literate. And the kind of development of print capitalism makes this way more applicable, make, makes it more possible because of the spread of text, um, which then went from being an incredibly privileged uh, facet of society, you know, whether or not you can read, to being one that allows for kind of widespread. And this, you know, gets tied into legibility and colonialism, but that's a conversation for another day. Now, Martin Jay is another uh, scholar who has further expanded on this idea of ocular centrism with what he calls regimes of scopic modernity. So he's categorizing modernity as scopic, meaning focused on vision, on what we can see. 
Um, and Scopic modernity refers to this large epoch in Western history where vision becomes central to everyday relations and in, in the way he analyzes it within pop culture, within um, uh, history, within particularly art history. So beginning with the Renaissance and tied to the scientific revolution, Scopic modernity links rationality, reason, and a disembodied mind to visual perception. In other words, being able to see is linked to reason, is linked to the ability to um, engage in rational conversations. Sight gains this power as this quantitative, objective, dispassionate form of truth, which bleeds into all facets of society and as we'll talk about in a little bit, still persists today in how we understand uh, who we are and how we relate to one another. What is truth? What is real? What is objective? So um, J. Martin J. discusses the emergence of Scopic modernity within three concurrent moments of European art history. So he's looking at painting and he's drawing out of some of his analysis of different moments in um, art history. And I'm not going to go super in-depth into it, but I want to talk about these three moments because I think they give a little bit of insight into what he's getting at with Scopic modernity. So the first moment was this Cartesian perspectivism, uh, where visual representations create a perspective, a visual field or a point of view where the painter and the viewer have the same gaze. Now this perspective was withdrawn from the painter's emotion and essentially was known to hold a mirror to the world. This form of painting was tied to science, uh, mathematics, uh, and created flat representations that involved what he says or quotes as the dispassionate eye of the natural observer. So Cartesian perspectivism was creating this kind of divide um, this objective perspective that emerges out of this uh, moment in art history. Now, concurrently, the second moment or the second uh, uh, wave of paintings is uh, entailed the art of describing. And it stemmed out of Dutch paintings at the time. It was characterized by flat, map-like renditions. Um, and this perspective... Uh, involved narration and text. It centered them, providing um, this world that was tied to very map-oriented, flat renditions. Um, it was detailed depictions, but they had less of um, uh, this objective observer because there was no observers. They were frameless um, and offered a bird's-eye view a perspective from nowhere, essentially. And then the final moment was grounded in Baroque works of the time. Now, these were not Cartesian because they offered three-dimensional representations rather than this monocular perspective. And they weren't like the Dutch descriptions because they were open and largely unreadable or illegible. They intended or attempted to represent the unrepresentable, and this was uh, seen in a lot of the, the links to uh, deities, to very large 
masses of bodies confusing um, imagery in a lot of ways. Uh, so it was separate, but also part of this vision-centered point of view. Now, taking all of these theories about the priority of vision um, in Western modernity, it's interesting to think about um, how Martin Jay points to this plurality of scopic regime, regimes excuse me, to give context to the contemporary hegemony of vision and this general scopic turn. Uh, these perspectives also present interesting provocations for the role of vision in contemporary social interactions in both the West as we know it and beyond. Um, so for instance, scopic modernity has been linked to surveillance. Um, many have um, asked if we are able to get away from being constantly rendered visible or legible to larger powers like the state, like the church, um, and many argue that we're not. For instance, Foucault writes about uh, Bentham's Panopticon in his book Discipline and Publish, uh, Punish. Excuse me. Now, the Panopticon was this design for a prison that was never actually built, but it was this design where there was a guard tower that was uh, centered in the middle of a prison and offered a view into every prisoner's cell. But no prisoner could see where the guards were looking because their windows were one-way windows. This would lead to several um, incidences of self-policing where the prisoners would behave in a way as which the guards were already watching them or persistently watching them for fear of the omnipresent view of the guard, you know, to get them in trouble. So Foucault explains that this panopticon idea is a metaphor for the constant surveillance present in modern society. And you can think about different ways in which this happens, both in terms of actual prisons, but also just being constantly aware of rules that we have to follow and being worried of being seen if we break any of those rules. In another vein, in a kind of a different direction, Richard Kearney wrote, wrote a book recently called Touch, which claims that we are so dependent on vision and so disregarding of other senses like touch that we have lost touch with touch itself. Now, this disembodied reality involves what he calls excarnation, a disconnect between individuals and their bodies. And so he talks about how we can tactfully reconnect with our other senses, um, including touch, in a way that doesn't privilege vision. So if we take these ideas together in tandem and think about um, how uh, historically vision has been central to you know, ideas or notions of truth and reason in Western modernity for centuries, it's interesting to think about the contemporary manifestations and the contemporary consequences of those examples. Uh, it's constant in our lives today with the circulation of different uh, computers, phones, the more obvious constantly being on camera, but also in different, more subtle ways. Um, for instance, military equipment for modern warfare depends on satellites and drones, which are visually oriented technology. Um, social media relies on the constant circulation of images on Instagram, for instance, or texts on Twitter, 
or videos on TikTok, and this constant circulation of visual imagery is central. Um, vision works its way into our linguistic metaphors. Uh, in language, for instance, we say, I believe it when I see it. Um, we say, uh, you and I see eye to eye when we mean to agree. Or um, I can picture it in my mind's eye, again, centering the eye here. And then finally, during the pandemic, one thing that emerged kind of central to my experience, and I'm sure many others, was that I was constantly on Zoom or FaceTime or WhatsApp in order to socialize over a video call during work or school or just for pleasure. And this kind of constant being online, being uh, uh on the computer, having my camera on, was this constant scopic presence, right? This this constant visual presence. And it makes me think a little bit too about people who have uh, anxieties about this and who worry about their cameras being on, people who use dashboard cameras, for instance, people who actually cover up their cameras on their computer. Um, being a kind of just an, a, a, a normal part of how we operate today, how we make relationships is through visual connections, right? Things that are put up online are often stored in the ether, too stored in a moment where um, they're hard to take down. We are constantly being rendered legible, constantly being surveilled. Um, and many kids are growing up with this in as a backdrop, right? Now, it's not to say that there weren't other forms of visual surveillance before the internet and before uh, Zoom came around, but that this I think is a moment in which we are transferring a lot of our everyday interactions onto very hyper-visual and hyper-surveilled spaces. So I want to leave you with that question of what other examples can you think of of scopic modernity, moments where our lives are oriented around what we can see, um, where we go, how we travel, how we move, how we connect, um, are largely oriented around what we can see and and putting faith in vision. Um, there's an interesting relationship between what we perceive, what we think we can see, and what we actually do see, but so many times that relationship is obscured because we assume that what we see is the truth, right? This gets called into question in court cases, um, in <laughs> relationships where vision and memories about vision are not always as clear as they appear. Very often they are blurry and they are not rendered as clear as we would like them to be. So I want to leave you there. This was a shorter podcast, but one that I think introduces an interesting consideration of this paradigm that we're living in, of scopic dependency, of being really centered around our sight. So in the coming weeks, as I mentioned, we will return to individual sensations to talk about the nuances of the five senses that we know and maybe others, including kinesthesia or proprioception, um, the sense of heat, the sense of temperature. So we'll get into that, and I'm looking forward to having you on board. Thanks for tuning in, and I will see you again in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm.